another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of ChristianGospelChurch.org. And together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, today is one of those fun episodes. I've been actually sitting here thinking before we're recording it how excited I am to record this one because for me it's just incredibly fun. We were, as you know, cult royalty and um, this may be one of those episodes now that I think about it where you and I may have a little bit of conflict which is going to be interesting because I was cult royalty but I wasn't a minister, never have any inclination to even be one, but I got to see what happened outside of the churches. So I got to see whenever we're going to an event or we're traveling, I got to see the people outside of the church while the rest of the people saw them only when they approached the platform. And it was just so crazy interesting because you have people who, you know, I, I grew up with people who like to have fun. We did a lot of fun things and, um, the version of them that people see behind the platform isn't always what you see behind the scenes, if you know what I'm saying. I, I know exactly what you're saying, John. So um, message preachers, and, and I'm sure this goes all the way back to William Branham, they all have their own mythos. They all have this persona that the majority of people uh, in the church think about them based primarily on what they do when they're on the platform, right? Right. Uh, but when you when you get alone with these people and you spend time with them, uh, talking to them, you find out that they are very, very different people than what they present themselves as uh, in front of crowds. And this is almost universally true yeah. uh, among message preachers that I have known. Yeah. And the same with William Branham, John, the same with William Branham. And and in this episode today, we're going to be getting to we're going to dive in and start looking at his international tours, his overseas tours, I should say. Uh, and that's what we're going to start looking at today. And, yeah. uh, you know, if you listen to William Branham, it sounds like he made about 75 overseas tours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but truthfully, there's really only four. There's really only four major overseas tours that William Branham made. And uh, today we're going to look at the first two of those uh, overseas tours. Funny side story I'll tell before we get into this, just because, again, <laughs> this is one of those episodes that I'm going to have fun with, if you can't tell. Uh, I have another minister friend who has left the cult of personality of William Branham, and he grew up in one of these very rigid fundamentalist sects, you know, very legalistic sects of the message. And um, he, as a minister, his version of himself off the stage was pretty much the same as the version of himself that was on the stage. So when he experienced for the first time what I'm talking about, um, he was just floored. Like these, wait these these are people who aren't living, aren't walking the walk and talking the talk. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. He he explained to me he was uh, with a group of the brethren, and they were watching a movie in a well-respected, quite famous um, 
person in the message in their house. And, you know, the cult is against movies and television, especially back when this story happened. But he's watching this movie with him. And number one, he's just floored that here's this group of men who are blasting anybody with a television who have a television in their home and they're watching a movie. But not just that. It was an R-rated action movie. Oh, and my goodness. He, <laughs> he had never seen, I, I'm pretty sure he told me he had never seen an R-rated movie before. And these guys are just casually watching it, you know, drinking, probably not I, alcohol, but who knows. But this lady without her clothes on comes onto the screen, and he's like, oh, my gosh. And he he looked around. There's They're all just sitting there watching it. <laughs> and, oh, my goodness. And uh, he, he says, guys don't you think we ought to turn this off <laughs> and it wasn't until he spoke up that one of them said yeah we probably should do that <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible you know where, where i come from john so just on the same little topic you know uh, all of that kind of goes to the fact that a lot of the preachers in the message don't actually believe the message john um, I, I hate to say it. They they don't. And that that's one of the biggest things I found in my sect of the message. The overwhelming majority of the preachers in my sect of the message know all these stories uh, that we're telling. They know all these things about William Branham and a whole bunch of worse stuff that we haven't even got to yet. <laughs> they And they know it's true, and they don't really believe the message. Very, very few message preachers that I met actually actually believe the message but when it was what i found out almost all of the old timers all knew that this thing was a scam and a hoax um and it, a lot of the i guess you'd say the middle tier preachers the next younger generation of preachers had largely clued into it and i'm kind of a third generation of message preachers john so uh you know as i, as I came in i started to clue in it, it was about five years after i was preaching that i started to clue in that the other preachers don't all believe the message um and you know you you kind of ask yourself why 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 are they in there if they don't believe the message or what's going on and you know a lot of people have different reasons but you know it's people like me john people like you who were the real true believers in this message we are devastated when we find out this stuff is not true and we're the ones who kind of wake up and leave and and truthfully the the ones who end up leaving are the ones who were the true blue honest loving the message believers that wake up and realize oh my goodness this thing was a scam and it breaks our hearts and, and we leave we're the ones who end up leaving and coming out here and speaking out like this i tell people that i believed it hook line and sinker <laughs> now i will say that i you know i've been to churches from arizona to south carolina and everywhere in between i do know people that were real ministers included that were real they actually believed what they said but i will say that by and large they're few and far between there are a lot that you know, maybe they do believe it, but they really don't live in the way that they present themselves behind the pulpits. And anyone who knows these people, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, it's, you know, it's interesting because William Branham, as we've already portrayed throughout the course of this podcast, is very much the same way. There is the stage version of the person, and then there's the offstage version of the person. And that's why I'm so excited about this episode, because it is a side story, don't get me wrong, but it is a side story that actually is in the main timeline that 
is a building block to the rest of it. So this is one of those episodes where we're going to explore William Branham's what happened off stage, what happened on stage, what entered into the history books as William Branham, and how none of it, and let me repeat, none of it makes any sense or is even realistic. Yeah, this, what goes on overseas, you know, before we dive into it, so much of it, like everything else and like a large part of William Branham's life, a lot of these overseas stories is pure hoax. It's purely made-up fiction stories of what happened overseas. And, you know, uh, there's people going along here helping him invent these stories as we go along, too. So as, as we talk about this, think also about all the people that are there with him as these hoaxes are unfolding. Um, and think about what they had to go along with, uh, you know, in order to in order to uh, let these legends and rumors and myths about William Branham grow. Um, now, I know we recently did a full episode on um, William Branham and the Sam Houston Coliseum in January of 1950, you know, right as William Branham's coming into the peak of his popularity. And as, as soon, really, honestly, as those uh, that, that campaign was over that started there in Houston, um, William Branham, he had uh, debated the Reverend Best, F.F. Bosworth was there, the halo picture was taken soon as that's over, William Branham packs up and they head out on his first overseas tour. Um, and that that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today, these overseas tours. And, you know, once we're kind of on this side of the table, John, um, outside of the message looking back, um, and we can kind of look at things a little bit objectively, there is an angle of these overseas tours that I see that I never really saw when I was in the message. Uh, because, you know, in 1950, when William Branham went overseas, right after that Sam Houston Coliseum debate, um, you know, we thought it's because he's so important and so popular and he's got such a great message, he has to take it to the world, right? That's kind of how we framed it. He was the prophet to this generation. He was the end-time messenger, and he's got to go out to the whole world to give the whole world an opportunity to hear his divine message. That That's kind of how we framed up these overseas tours. But... I think there's another. I think there's another angle to it, John. Um, the truth is, I think things were starting to get hot for him here in the United States and Canada. The investigations were closing in on him in in Canada and in the Pentecostal denominations. They had uncovered mountains of failed healings, right? And these people in the United States and Canada were starting to clue in that there's something going on with William Branham, um, and it wasn't good. And, you know, this all culminates, you go to the Sam Houston Coliseum where he's out and out confronted by Reverend Bess, you know, in front of all these people and it hits the papers and stuff. And I think him going overseas has a whole lot to do to uh, get out of the kitchen because it's getting too hot for him. He needs to go somewhere where he's not known and try and uh, let things cool off here in the United States. And I, I honestly think that was a large part of him starting to go overseas. I believe so. It was getting really hot, and when you look at the timeline that we, you know, we've explored already, um, people were starting to wake up to the fact that these men, not just William Branham, there were uh, picture a world where there are hundreds of William Branhams. I mean, I know how we were raised in and indoctrinated in this cult to believe that he was the one, he was the only one, all the others were frauds. Well, in the world in which this grew from, there were a number of these men making the same claims, 
using the same types of fraud, using the same stage personas with angels and commissions and visitations and whatnot, spiritual signs, experiences. Signs in their hands. Basically, basically signs and wonders. And I, again, I'm not a preacher, but if you look at the Bible where it says an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, you had hundreds of men claiming to be Christian who were asking people to believe their sign. That's, I mean, honestly, that's how bad it was. And people were starting to wake up to this. And when William Branham started to be exposed in America, America was no longer the same playground that it was prior to 1950s. You know, John Alexander Dowie just swept through America in the 1890s, and people believed it hook, line, and sinker, just like I did. But it was a completely different arena by 1950. People were a little bit more skeptical. And America was no longer the fertile ground for these, let's just say it, these con artists that were doing this. But there were other countries that were developing nations that were fertile grounds. And it looks very much like these men just banded together and decided, hey, America's drying up. Let's go find another playground to play in. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a large part of it. And also, you know, he thinks he's going overseas. There's no there's no other deliverance preachers in Europe on his first trip. William Branham is actually the first American deliverance preacher to ever tour in Europe here on this first campaign. And so he's going somewhere where there's also no competition, right? There's no Oral Roberts in Europe. There's no A.A. A. Allen in Europe. So he's going somewhere where he's got, you know, Fresh crowds, no competition, and you know he can draw in um, some 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 big crowds. I, I think that's part of his thought as well. And so, by the time you get to the end of 1948, and you know his campaigns are being investigated, he's he's had the stuff with Reverend Best, and the denominations are starting to crack down a little bit on his campaigns. Um, you get into 1950, and he, he travels overseas, and his first tour overseas is really, it's through Scandinavia, so northern Europe, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Norway, and, you know, even to this day, John, there is a large message presence in Scandinavia, in Europe, Sweden, I, I think that perhaps in Europe, the, the presence in Scandinavia overall might be the largest, it might be the most message churches in Scandinavia than the rest of Europe combined, um, kind of based on my knowledge of, of the message in Europe. Uh, but as, as he went over there, Joseph Matson bose um, you know, pastor of the Philadelphia Church, informal head of the Independent Assemblies of God, he's from Sweden. And there's a large network of Independent Assemblies of God churches across Sweden and across the rest of Scandinavia that are all um, in Joseph Matson Bose's orbit and and within his uh his denomination and he takes and plays a really big role in 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 setting up these campaigns across uh Scandinavia and what happens here is if if you remember Joseph Matson Bose uh, in his magazine, Herald of Faith, this they represent the mainstream of the Latter Rain movement. Um, some of the elders, I think A.W. Rasmussen was one of the elders at North Battleford in Latter Rain. He's moved by this point over to um, Joseph Matson Bose's church, um, and they they're publishing the Latter Rain Herald of Faith together. So this tour of of Scandinavia is not just a healing revival tour. This is very much a Latter Rain revival tour 
too, right? William Branham has a whole entourage of latter rain men with him on this uh, tour of Scandinavia as well. And so as as they take off over there they're they're especially visiting the independent assemblies of god churches uh, and and a lot and this is taking not just healing revival ideas but also taking latter rain revival ideas over to europe and uh, as i mentioned he visits sweden finland denmark and norway and you know through those meetings um the the attendance averaged around 7000 uh, at his campaign stops through there. So roughly 7,000 people was kind of his average crowd size. So much, much smaller than what he was getting in the United States. Uh, but still, you know, that's a pretty good sized crowd, 7,000 on average. And the thing is, though, John, and as he's praying for people over there, the same things actually start happening almost immediately in Europe. He prays for people. He tells them they're healed. And they go home and die. The same problem follows him to Europe. Yeah. And you know, people hearing this history, they're thinking, why Scandinavia? Well, you've got Joseph Matson Bose, who is quite literally rising as a key player in William Branham's management team. Eventually, he and Jim Jones will become William Branham's management team. And like you said, he was from Sweden, and Scandinavia encompasses you know, a few different um, countries in that region. Well, Scandinavia countries were heavily influenced by the Welch Revival, which actually predated the Azusa Street Revival. And then after Azusa Street Revival broke out, this went back into Scandinavia. And so it was influenced basically from two um, holiness-style revivals. So you had this whole fertile ground of holiness people that William Branham can now go entertain. And he's literally just transferring his stage persona from the American Pentecostal sect, which are now starting to wake up to the many fraudulent claims that he's making. And he's targeting a region who has never heard these fraudulent claims. And he is um, working with the leaders of the Scandinavian um, revival. You can you can clearly say that Joseph Matson Bose and A.W. Rasmussen were were highly influential in that region. Oh yes, very much so. They were very well known, very popular. The Herald of Faith magazine had wide subscribership in Scandinavia as well. So this it kind of is just the natural first step, the first place for William Branham to go overseas because this is where the people in his inner circle have the most influence overseas. Also, Charles, there is a when you think about the Latter Rain Revival, there's also a Canadian connection because the holiness sect of uh, Pentecostalism that came out of Sweden basically historically became the Independent Assemblies of God, uh, led by A.W. Rasmussen and Joseph Matson Bose. Those merged into the overall Assemblies of God and literally swept through Canada, through um you know, Rasmussen and Bose's church in the Philadelphia church in Chicago. So that became the central core of uh, spreading the the Swedish style of religion into Canada, especially targeting the regions that latter rain um, revivals broke out in, broke out from. And um, there's this deep connection of those churches had affiliates back in Scandinavia. So when William Branham visited a church in um, 
Canada, especially these churches that we've mentioned that he is targeting, they will have told him about their churches back in Sweden and Norway, etc. And so William Branham himself is taking note of all of the opportunities that he could, you know, present his fictional life stories, etc. Right. And I, I think that when we when you think about this tour to, over there to Scandinavia, William Branham really was not setting up message churches on this first tour like like we would think of message churches today um he was he was going around he was visiting existing pentecostal ish type churches um and was just planting seeds he was you know making connections contacts and one incredibly important person that he does meet over here in norway is a man named brother larson john and and he is fairly well-known among message old-timers. So Brother Larson's a Norwegian man, and he actually moved to the United States and started attending the Tabernacle, John, after uh, this campaign. Uh, he was really taken up with Brother Branham. And so there is a Norwegian family at the Branham Tabernacle throughout all of these years up until, the, you know, after Brother Branham dies. And after Brother Branham dies, uh, Brother Larson actually goes back to Norway and he is very, very, very fundamental, John, in setting up um, a lot of the core message churches in uh, Scandinavia, actually. So he goes back around a lot of those places that William Branham had toured while he's over there, and he starts um, really pushing the William Branham as Elijah component and starts forming a lot of the groups that we would know in Scandinavia today as message churches. So William Branham didn't, he didn't really convert existing churches, but he drew people out who in the years, the later years of his life and after he dies, they're going to go around and actually build out all of the, the message churches that currently exist in, in Scandinavia. Brother Larson was his name. And I, I think there's something worth pointing out there, especially for the psychologists that are listening to the show, interested in how all of these cults emerge from this latter rain movement this wasn't a time when william branham was building a cult like you say he was not going into these churches and trying to convert them to the message as leaders in the message today will tell you he was if you look back at the statements that he made during the latter rain version of the message he's making statements like um Everybody should join together. If they draw you out of their circle, draw a bigger circle and draw them back in. Literally, he's saying it is an inter-evangelical, inter-denominational faith. And the primary theme during this time is that the overall church has become apostate. It has become apostate because of the Catholic Church, which we've explored in previous episodes was a clan agenda. And... Of those apostate churches, we need people to, you know, come back to God. Stay in your church. If you're Baptist, stay Baptist. If you're Methodist, stay Methodist. Stay in your church. Look to God. Don't look to the church to save you. It is Jesus that saves you. He's saying, you know, some really good things. I'll put it like that. It wasn't what you think until the later years. It isn't until the stage persona, stage persona changes a few more times before we start to see him telling people, no, you should not be in a Baptist church. The Baptist has, the, it's a denomination, and the denomin denominations are the mark of the beast. This isn't that time. This is the time no. when everybody's welcome. Be in your church. Stay where you are. But there were some very eccentric people, some very... Um, extremist 
versions of, you know, believers in these churches that all just kind of congregated around this. And they kind of pulled William Branham in the direction of becoming what his later stage persona would become. Right. People were... William Branham was attracting a cult following, <laughs> and their cult of personality was developing around him. But at this point in time, uh, he was not, he hadn't been kicked out, honestly. And when he gets kicked out of Voice of Healing, when the denominations all turn on him, when some stuff that's going to happen in some future episodes we're going to talk about unfolds, that in reaction to those events, William Branham suddenly gets the revelation that denominations are the mark of the beast, and <laughs> you're going to go to hell unless you leave your denomination and come, you know, to the prophet's church, right? So those things coincide with William Branham's falling out with 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 the broader Pentecostalism. So, you know, as William Branham went to uh, Scandinavia... Um, I mentioned before, people are dying, John. People are still getting sick and, and, and dying and not getting better after William Branham um, is telling them that they're healed. And um, I have one newspaper article here. I shared it with you before. You can put it up on the screen. But when William Branham was in Norway, uh, the government... So Norway was his last stop on the tour. And by the time he got to Norway, these stories were percolating. He stayed several months in Europe. By the time he gets to his last weeks and he gets into Norway... The stories have been going around Scandinavia already that people are dying. People are abandoning their medical treatment after being told they're healed and dying. And so when he gets to Norway, uh, the Department of Health, the Director of Health in Norway, bans William Branham from praying for the sick. And so they send the police, and they send police into William Branham's meetings, um, basically to shut down his healing lines. Um, and... You know, in the message, John, um, you know, we we always, I don't know how you framed it in your sect of the message, but we framed it like this. The devil hated William Branham and was trying to shut down his healing revivals. And these old carnal men of the world, they just hate divine healing and they're desperate to destroy the prophet and they don't believe in the supernatural. And they we, we'll talk about all that stuff. But we won't talk about all the people who died who caused them to send in the police to shut down the healing revivals, right? Um, if you actually take a step back and look at it, the people that were shutting him down were the true heroes. They were saving lives by shutting him down. Yeah, and it, it really is something. And this, this newspaper article I, I've shared with you, it's in Norwegian, so I'm sure our average listener here is not going to be able to read what it says. But um, if you if you look through William Branham's scholarly biographies, they talk about these. And John, you have translated copies of these on your website as well. But the, the government in Norway um, shut down the healing revivals by the time he got to their country um, and, and, and stopped what was going on. Um, because the same things were happening in Europe that had been happening in the United States and Canada, people were dying. People were dying. And I really wish, I really wish the message preachers would be honest about this stuff and tell the truth about why these things were happening. Because, but, but they can't because it, it impinges so much on the legend of William Branham, you know, um, so they've got to frame it as it's just the devil trying to shut down his revivals. They cannot ever acknowledge that all these people died. It, it's something else. And um, there, there's another thing that came out of this first European, I should say another thing, multiple other things that came out of this 
out of this tour. William Branham claimed that he did some really interesting things on these tours. John. Yes, he did. <laughs> and uh, I w- I'd like to just talk about a few of these stories that William Branham told when he got back home. And uh, Now we're so getting the- into the fun stuff. <laughs> So, so he went to London. We'll talk about London in a minute. He went to London first. So he like had a layover. He came from Europe. He landed in London. We'll talk about what happened in London in a second. But after London, he went to Paris before he then went on to Helsinki, Finland to start his campaign. So he made stop in London and stop in Paris before he went to Helsinki. And maybe you want to talk, John, about what William Branham did while he was in Paris. Let's let's just take it into a parallel universe for a second when i was in the message i had to go on a business trip and the business trip was las vegas and anybody who is in the message sect who hears me say this they're gonna say oh my gosh what did you do how did you feel i was mortified mortified you're not there the day judgment falls right (laughs) like like i've been there a few times too john when you go to vegas you're dear god let me get out of here before the day of judgment gosh i remember walking to the hotel but i don't know if it's the same way now but back then you know prostitution is legal and they have like baseball cards of women with no clothes and they're scattered like they they give them out to the people on the streets and they scatter them onto the streets so as you're walking into your hotel you see baseball cards of naked ladies everywhere at least whenever i was there years ago and um once i got into the hotel i will say this las vegas during the daytime is different than las vegas at the nighttime so I'm an early bed, early rise kind of guy anyway, so it wasn't as bad as it could have been. But I will say that I was so terrified that I went to the business meeting, and normal business meeting, it could have been in, I don't know, Topeka, Kansas. It, was, it wasn't really anything risque. And then I went straight out of the conference center, you know, up the elevator into my room, and I just stayed in my room because I was terrified of this place I was in. And so I did not see, I did not experience what a lot of other people would see in Las Vegas other than the baseball cards, which I'm going to tell you was pretty bad. And um, let's take it into a parallel universe. What if you and I were with a group of, I don't, I can't remember how many people were with William Branham. Let's say it's 20 other men. We're with 20 other men of which many of them are organizing this trip and they're homosexual. And you and I, well, we don't want to put ourselves in the William Branham state. Let's say that there's this other guy and he's the William Branham of our our fictional group. Two of those men are, multiple of those men are homosexual who are directly responsible for his meetings. In fact, one of the, one of the primary organizers of another trip, which we'll talk about later, was a uh, avowed and very open homosexual. And Let's say that these men were going into Las Vegas and they said, hey, did you know that Las Vegas completely changes at night? And they've taken away the filter. So instead of showing partially clad women, they're going to be women and men and lots of men. And they're all going to be completely without clothes. Let's go see them. Charles, would you go see them? (laughs) My goodness, John. Uh, no, you know, I, I, I have been to Vegas on business trips too, John. And I have to say the first time I went, it was like the scariest, it is like 
the scariest thing for a message believer. It's scarier than going to L.A., you know, when the California is going to fall <laughs> off, right? Absolutely. You go, when you get done, you go and you lock yourself in your room and you don't come out again until it's time to go home. Like it, it is, they proposition you on every street corner. <laughs> <laughs> it is the scariest place in the world for a message believer. Yeah. yeah. And no, no, you, you, you have to, you, you like go through those places with your eyes closed the whole time. Dear God, please don't let me catch a glimpse of something that I shouldn't see in this place. Like you, you're even afraid to lay eyes on a, on a slot machine, you know, in the message. <laughs> We're but, pilgrims in an unholy land, Indy. <laughs> uh, and so I know exactly what it's like to have to be forced to go into those places. And you're the whole time you're trying to not even look at it. William Branham and them. What, what do they do, John? You know, and, and people today won't even understand this unless I say it like this. Las Vegas isn't even a comparison. Las Vegas would be like taking your kids to see the Amish style um Disney World compared to the city that we're going to talk about. William Branham was asked by men or he instigated. We don't know if he's the one who suggested it or if the others were suggested it. But somebody on the trip, whether it was William Branham or one of the others, said, let's go visit the homosexual capital of the world where there is open sex on the street there i mean this is this is a place that was so infamous that during the war um it's called place pigal in paris and during the war it became so infamous that the french and the um italians and all americans everybody heard of this place that is world famous and they came to see because it was so incredibly worse than anything that they've ever seen in their lives and this is where William Branham's campaign team went to find entertainment. William Branham talks about this on tape, going to this place. He said, I wanted to go see what it was all about. So they go into <laughs> this essentially nudist homosexual community Yes, uh, in Paris uh, with with. I don't even want to think about it. it. It's so terrible. It's worse than anything imaginable that 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 I can imagine. I mean, it, it's it's the height of sinful debauchery, and they they go visit into this. And William Branham he talks about this on tape actually quite a number of times going to visit this place. And you wonder what would possess a person to want to go to a place like this. Yeah. Um, and I use that word possess on purpose. <laughs> what would possess a person to want to go to a place like that? It, it, it's, a, it's, yeah. it's hard to believe. And, and in the Voice of Healing magazine, John, I'll have to find this article for you. There's, one there's only one line about this. And Gordon Lindsay writes, um, Paris truly is the darkest sinful place on <laughs> earth. <laughs> there's one line that finds its way in the Voice of Healing. But William Branham goes into elaborate explanation. Um, yeah. in some of his on tape in some yeah. of these spots. I'll throw some quotes up on the screen, but if you read what William Branham says about this place, it looks very much from the statements that he made, especially after he's, he begins to lose his mind and he loses his filter, it looks very much like he is the one that suggested, hey guys, let's go see the naked men. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it's so hard to believe, but not just that. So let's go back to our fictional story, Charles. So. 
for whatever reason, I don't know, they gave us 5 million bucks to go. See. I wouldn't even do it for 5 million bucks if I was in the message. I would not go to this place. But let's say somehow they drugged us and put <laughs> put bags over our face and knocked us out and put us on a plane and got us into Vegas somehow while we're in the message. And we go to this strip club of naked men and you and I and they pull the bags off our face and say hey let's have fun and we're like <laughs> we're still mortified so we're we're in this place right and then we go back to our congregations and tell our tell the families the fathers about this place of naked men and say you need to take your daughters to see it there was open prostitution right there on the streets it's it's terrible, John. It it's William Branham presents it like a fact finding tour, you know, kind of like, oh, I went to the spiritualist camps to fact find tour what the witches was doing. I went to I went to the worst home of sodomy in the world in order to fact find what was going on in this place. Like he presents it to his audience like he's going on a fact finding tour into the depths of hell, basically. Yeah. Like and it's what in the world? Like they're. I, 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 it's just, I, it's unbelievable to me. Yeah. The real problem for me, I'll, I'll say it like this. I've done a lot of research at this point and I've become to intimately know these people that I'm researching. It's not surprising to me that William Branham did this. And it's even less surprising to me that he suggested it. As we go on, you'll see why I say this. Um, I can understand him going there. I can understand him suggesting it. What's really surprising to me is that the others went with him. Because if you really think about this, they were growing what became now the New Apostolic Reformation. They were in the latter rain version of what became the New Apostolic Reformation. All of these churches that are built on this foundation of men these are their, well, I'll say it like the book. These are God's generals. God's generals are going to see strippers. And I just cannot fathom that this entire religion is built on these quote-unquote generals who go to see strippers. Male strippers. Male strippers. God have mercy, John. <laughs> we need to change the subject. This is <laughs> okay. okay, rant done. <laughs> Oh boy, yeah, it, it's terrible, John. It's terrible. It's terrible. I mean, it's unbelievably terrible, um, unbelievably terrible. Uh, and and so that is one thing that is true. Seems to be true about William Branham's stories. So a lot of the stuff that happened over there turns out to be hoaxes. But God have mercy, that part was true, John. He really, I think he really did go to the Pagal. Uh, yeah, goodness. you can tell whenever he tells a story and it changes over time, that's the fiction. But when he is consistent time after time after time, that's the real truth. And he was always consistent about visiting and why he visited Place Pagal. So why don't we talk about maybe some of the stories next that he made up um, on this first tour overseas. And so before he went to Paris, he first stopped in, in London and... There's an incredibly famous message story. I'm sure not many people in the message realize he went to Place Pagal, right? But everybody knows this story. He went to England and he prayed for King George and King George got healed. Everyone <laughs> knows that story in the message, right? Right. 
so, you know, a couple days before he went to place Begal, he went to Buckingham Palace and prayed for the King of England. And the King was miraculously healed, right? And he says this on tape quite a few times. And I, I got a quote here just, just to read it. You can put it up on the screen if you want, John. But he, in, in At Thy Word, in 1951, he preaches, Coming into Jeffersonville office, there was a cablegram from King George of England. It says, Brother Branham, I understand through my secretary that one of his friends was healed of multiple sclerosis. I desire you to come pray for me, and our Lord Jesus will heal me. And I know the angel which said to you, you're going to pray for kings and monarchs and great men. Oh, I asked him if I could go. And now King George of England is healed of multiple sclerosis. He's well. He is a well man. And in other quotes, he claimed he went to, to Buckingham Palace to actually perform the prayer and, and the healing. And and so that's an amazing story, John, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> if it were true, yes. <laughs> that's an amazing, it's fantastic. Healing the King of England is an amazing story. And William Branham told this story a lot. But unfortunately, it's a totally fake story. Yes. It is a totally fake story. And let me point out the problems with this, um, if it's not obvious to our to our listeners. Uh, the first problem is the King of England never had multiple sclerosis. <laughs> never. <laughs> so, so, so William Branham went to visit the King of England and heal him of multiple sclerosis, but the King of England never had multiple sclerosis. So how how does that how does that work, right? How do you heal somebody something they don't even have? Um, and he was a very yeah. very sick man. I mean, the world at the time William Branham is making these claims, they know yeah. that the king is very very sick. It they would be like sick. you know, it would be like if you were dying of cancer, and I say that I healed you of a head cold, and then you still died of cancer. Well, yeah. what the, good is that, right? Right. the The king was terminally ill. Right. The king of England was terminally ill. He didn't have multiple sclerosis, but he was terminally ill. He had lung cancer. So this would be Queen Elizabeth's father, is who this is. And he had he had lung cancer, and then he died from his lung cancer, right? And here's the thing. This is the pattern, right? William Branham says they're healed, and then they die, right? Right. William Branham says he healed the King of England, and only a few months later the King of England dies from lung cancer. Um... And so I, I'm pretty sure in William Branham's mind, he thought he healed him of whatever the real thing was. And I think there was a new story that had come out around that time that the king's health had started improving, right? Uh, I don't think they had actually told the public the king had lung cancer, right? No. Like that was kind of secret. The public didn't know what the king actually had. And he had a, a, an operation and he started to get better in the news. And I think William Branham's trying to take credit for this. He's getting better in the news, right? And so he didn't get better totally, though. He ended up, he still died just a few months later, right? And so even if William Branham did pray for him, he died just just shortly after William Branham claimed to heal him. And But the thing is, it, it does seem to be a totally made-up story because everyone who was with him on the tour, there's not another single eyewitness account. Uh, people have went... You know, you can't just walk into Buckingham Palace, right? Right. Um, people have checked the visitor logs. They've checked the, you know, royal correspondence that's public. William Branham claimed to have got a telegram from the King of England's private secretary, right? All of this stuff is tracked, you know, in official records. There's nothing. This, this never happened. William Branham just totally made up 
the story of going to visit the king and pray for him. And, you know, the thing is, this is probably one of the highest profile failed healings, honestly, in William Branham's ministry. It's the highest. We're talking about the king yeah. of England. Yeah. And and so here's the thing, right? Um, William Branham said he prayed for the king of England. A few months later, the king of England died. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people know William Branham said he went and prayed for the king of England and healed him. Yeah. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people know that he died just a few months later. And William Branham gets away with it. I know. And what's really problematic for me, <clears throat> you know, I, again, I've extensively studied these men, Gordon Lindsay, Ern Baxter, F.F. F. Bosworth. I can find some very troubling things about a lot of these men. Jack Moore is this unusual oddity. Jack Moore comes out clean in almost every trail that I go through. It does appear that there is some um, some underlying motive behind his being in the ministry and through his father and father-in-law, etc., and his business operations. But Jack Moore, as a religious person, is um, definitely, he looks like he believes it. However, Jack Moore and, um, you know, at the time, Gordon Lindsay and Jack Moore running this newspaper. You've got Jack Moore, Gordon Lindsay, F.F. F. Bosworth, Ern Baxter. All of these men are with William Branham, and they're hearing him make this claim. Each one of these men absolutely know that this is false. Every one of them know that this is false. Yep. But these men are, again, God's generals, and they're continuing this thing. And they're lifting William Branham up as though this false thing is true. And there was a point in my research, I had to take a, a step back from all of this and ask the question, were any of these men actually Christian? Because a Christian does not do this. A Christian, when you like the Vegas thing, there's no way you could have persuaded me in the message to go see male strippers. There is no way. At the same time, there is no way that you could tell me that I need to convince hundreds of thousands of people of something that I knew was not true. Yeah, you know, when I when I look at the figures around William Branham, <clears throat> I look at Gordon Lindsay. We need to do a full episode on Gordon Lindsay at some point. In my mind, Gordon Lindsay redeems himself here at a certain point. But at this stage in William Branham's ministry, um, Gordon Lindsay's going along with the lie. Gordon Lindsay's publicizing the lie, and Gordon Lindsay's there, and he knows it's a lie. Gordon Lindsay was there. He knows William Branham never met the King of England. He was on the tour. And as we go through here, we'll, we're going to read a couple other examples. Gordon Lindsay knows beyond a shadow of a doubt William Branham is hoaxing, faking some of these things. Yet he publicizes it, John. Um... And at a certain point, Gordon Lindsay, I, I do feel, redeems himself somewhat. But at, at this point, um, yeah, Gordon Lindsay is Gordon Lindsay's along for the ride at this point. Um, you know, I, the way I look at Gordon Lindsay, John, Gordon Lindsay, and, and I have a whole lot of sympathy for Gordon Lindsay, I'll tell you the truth. Because just like me, Gordon Lindsay was born into a cult. Yeah. And Gordon Lindsay was raised in a cult. And Gordon Lindsay spent decades of his life in a cult. And Gordon Lindsay was a preacher in a cult. And Gordon Lindsay got sucked up from one cult leader to the next. And I, I, I can relate to all of this. And at a certain point, Gordon Lindsay's going to wake up, right? And, you know, of course, when you read Gordon Lindsay's official stories and stuff, they won't frame it this way at all to you, right? 
But at a certain point as we get here, Gordon Lindsay's going to wake up and realize, oh my goodness, I'm in bed with the devil. Yes, I'm in bed with the devil. Gordon Lindsay's going to wake up and realize this at a certain point. And he, and he, in my opinion, he redeems himself somewhat um, in this stuff. So we, we can talk about that in another episode. But, you know, as we... As we look at this here, the King King George story is made up, and the fact that he can tell this story to thousands of people, and thousands, the same thousands know the king dies. I mean, the king of England died. This is world news, okay? We just lived through the death of Queen Elizabeth, right? Right. There's not a single person in the world who don't know that Queen Elizabeth just died, right? Absolutely. The King of England was even more famous back then. There is not a single person in the world who did not know. Yet William Branham got away with telling people he healed the King of England. And then he died. It, it's unbelievable to me. And that, that actually speaks to me that there is some sort of thought control, brainwashing. There's something already going on all the way back at this, at this point in time, John, that allows people to reconcile this and go on believing this after this incredibly high-profile failed healing happened. And here's the thing. William Branham kept telling the story after the king died. I know. <laughs> so the king died, and, and years and years and years, on and on, all the way up, I think, even to the last years of his life, he's saying, I went, I prayed for the king of England, and he was healed. That is one of the things that has convinced me after my research that there was a strategy a lot of people look at this who aren't familiar with this history and they think this was accidental. William Branham just happened to do this. But this was a strategy. These sermons were recorded, which was unusual for the time. They were repeating and repeating and repeating false claims. And think of this, Charles. You and I had no idea that the king died. I had no idea. I oh, I knew yeah. some. We didn't uh, know history. Yeah, I knew history, but I did. I did not really piece it together in a timeline. I knew that the king died, and I knew that he died of a disease. I didn't realize it was while William Branham had claimed to be healing him because we didn't know this. But we had these recordings, which was highly unusual for all of these ministers in in this movement, right? That were repeating false claims over and over and over and over again. And think of this, Adolf Hitler, who did the same thing with the country of Germany, brought the entire, you know, the entire country is literally under mind control in Germany. And he did the same thing. And he even tells you how he does it. There's a quote and I'm paraphrasing. He says, if you tell a lie and you tell it big enough and you tell it often enough, people will believe it. William Branham did this, and he did it on recording, and then the institution that exists today, what are they doing? They're getting the children out into the fields, and they're telling them, now, we're going to send you out into a field alone, and we want you to listen to this recording. And they're using it as a manipulation tool to indoctrinate, to mind control these children. Yeah, if you tell... This is we know this is true, John, because we lived it. If you tell someone a fake story enough times, they're going to believe it. Yeah, they're going to believe it. And people in the message of this day believe that William Branham healed King George. King George is dead <laughs> and he's buried. And, you know, to me, this breaks my heart, John. I, I got to be honest. It breaks my heart. How in the world could William Branham do this to us? Yeah. How could he do this to us? How could he tell us these stories that he knew was not true? The king is dead and buried, and he's telling us he healed the king. And 
and and we're we're using these as signs to vindicate him or something and it's like Donnie Morton. I mean, it's the same exact scenario. Donnie Morton died of the diseases that William Branham claimed to have healed him. When my family left the message, and when you leave this cult and this religion, people think you're going to hell. There's no two ways about it. They think you are going to hell. And the argument to entice us back into this thing by... Well, there was only one family member that tried to convince us to come back. And this one family member, it wasn't... Well, what about Jesus or what about heaven or what about, you know, your soul or anything like this? Their our argument was actually, well, what about Donnie Morton? And I, at that time, I didn't even know Donnie Morton was a failed healing. But now I look back and I believed it. They believed it enough to use this as the argument to bring me back into the message. And it's not even true. Yeah, made up story. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. These things have these these made up stories have affected the lives of millions of people at this point. And 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 in this regard, I actually saw. I should see if I can find a copy of it. Someone wrote a letter to Buckingham Palace asking, you know, did William Branham visit Buckingham Palace and he and pray for King George? And they actually got an official letter from Buckingham Palace back that there is no record. Uh, and a denial that William Branham has ever visited Buckingham Palace and, and prayed for King George. The only thing, William Branham did go to Buckingham Palace and he took a picture outside with the guard outside like the everybody else does. <laughs> and, and, and then he went back to his airplane and went to Paris. And yeah, and so he probably that, he probably stood around and said, hey boys, let's pray for the king while we're here. He's suffering. And that's right. likely what happened. But <clears> the, you I'm, know, I'm, the cult I'm, argues that, well... There's no record because they're trying to cover it up. But no, if you've ever been to these establishments, it's very well documented who comes and who goes because it's a security thing. Right. There, there's guest books. There's yeah. You, you, you just can't get in to these places without it. And so, but here's the thing. This this is this is the only king William Branham got to mis- visit in Europe, was it, John? So after he got to uh, Finland, he went through Finland and he then went to Sweden next. And in Sweden. He got to do the same thing. He got to go to visit the king of Sweden, King Gustav. And uh, same thing, we put up the quotes for this. He claims that he went to the king's palace, got to pray for the king of Sweden. And the situation is very identical, John. He he goes, this is the month of, I think, April or May at this point. He prays for the king of Sweden, April or May, and King Gustav died in October. <laughs> William Branham can't catch a break. Uh, all these kings he's going to heal just keep dying, right? And and the thing is, it, it, with King Gustav, it's the exact same situation, honestly. There's nothing in any of these publications that have pictures. They Gordon Lindsay and Jack Moore don't even claim that they went to see uh, uh, the King of Sweden either. Um, <clears throat> it seems like William Branham totally made it up, and investigators as well have went through all the newspaper articles. They've went through the rec- all the records that are available, and William Branham never met King Gustav and prayed for him either, as, as far as everything can be told. And even if he did, he died l- like four months later as well. So it, it's something else, John. So let's take the fictional story that this were a message from God. If the king were healed, the people of England would have 
widely known William Branham's name. Here's this guy who just healed our king, right? And then historically, throughout the years, William Branham would be remembered as the man who healed King George, as William Branham claimed. If you go to England today and you ask any person on the street, Christian or non, who's William Branham, you're going to find that not even a fraction of a percent are familiar with his name. And many of these people are Christian people who believe in God. And in the cult, they teach you, you know, literally William Branham is your mediator between God and man. You have to know the message of William Branham to make it into heaven. Well, these people have never even heard of him. And how are they going to make it into heaven if they've never even heard the man's name? It, it would be, you know, in the overall Christian religion, you have to know Jesus Christ. You have to believe the words of Christ and faith in Jesus Christ. By faith are you saved through, you know, by grace are you saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, in the message, it's by healing are you saved through William Branham. But yet none of these people have even heard his name. Right. And I, I think it's also worth noting that in his official publications that he that he shared while he was in Europe and the publications that were made while he was there, he never mentions in any of those publications meeting King George or King Gustav or any of the royalty. Right. Right. It's only after he gets back to the United States. Right. And he gets a little bit down the road and that's in the rearview mirror. Then all of a sudden these stories appear. I prayed for King George. I prayed for King Goose. It's only somewhat after the fact. And so it, it's it's pretty obvious to me that he made these stories up after he got out of Europe, just trying to make himself, you know, look bigger than he was, honestly. And it's it's very sad. It it it, it it's John, it is a, like a knife in my heart finding out all of this stuff was a hoax to me in the message. It, and it still hurts to this day. That William Brand, that this stuff is a hoax. It's a hoax. It's a hoax. And it, it just, it's, it's killer. It's killer because these are the things that the angel said, you're going to go pray for kings. But he didn't. All of these king stories are fake. Every single one of them. It is really hard. I remember the years building <clears throat> up to my exiting the message and I remember the early years after and like everyone else who has done it, they will tell you this is the single most difficult thing that they've ever been through in their lives. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I know exactly what you're talking about. It is a part of you dies when you learn that this is all fiction. And, and this happened for me because I, like all the others, had brainwashed myself with these recordings. And I believe these stories because they were repeated over and over and over and over, even though they weren't true. So it's it's really hard, Charles. Yeah. I think there, there's one last story that happened over here in Europe that maybe I want to talk about before we move on to his next tour. And this is probably the most, I'd say maybe the most famous healing story in William Branham's ministry. It's certainly the most famous resurrection story, right? Right. William Branham, and this is, this is very well documented. There are, I believe, five different eyewitness accounts of this event, um, that are all recorded. So it's, we have, we have fairly good documentation on this event. And, and as we share this story, John, um, it really shines a, a huge light on how William Branham exaggerated stuff. Because if you pay real close attention to this story, it is a hard fact evidence of the extent to which William Branham made stuff up. And now, I'm sure almost everyone in the message is familiar with the story. It's it's the boy from Finland story. 
the boy from Finland story. And the little boy's name is Kerry Holma, is his name. And, you know, in in recent the recent months, there's actually a few other ministers that I've worked with. We've actually been trying to determine if this boy was still living um, and reach out to him through um, our contacts and message churches in Finland. Um, but to, to the best of our knowledge, the, the young boy has passed away by now. He'd certainly be in his 80s or 90s if he was still living. But his name was Kerry Holma. And as you as you listen to this story, um, just just pay attention and. This is supposedly one of the greatest miracles in William Branham's minister, and um, there was a pastor from Finland named um, uh, Reverend Soinanen, and his testimony is recorded in the book A Man Sent from God. There's a there's a copy of the testimony by uh, Jack Moore, who is an eyewitness to this in Voice of Healing. There's another copy of it from Gordon Lindsay. So there's multiple uh, written eyewitness testimonies of this thing that happened, and. If you want, you can get those eyewitness testimonies, and you can read them, compare these things for yourself. But, John, you want to read the one out of um, A Man Sent from God? Just So this is Pastor Soinanen's testimony. This is his eyewitness account of what happened. Yes, Charles, and I'll preface with, I believe this story, hook, line, and sinker. Even after leaving the message, it took me a while to grasp just how wrong this was, what they did to us. I first read this story and the conflicting versions in the book Legend of the Fall, which you're holding up, um, Legend of the Fall by Peter Dyser, and he mentions the difference in the stories, but it, it isn't until you put into a timeline and into the perspective of everything else that was fiction that you understand just how wrong this was. And I, I know where you're heading with this, so I'll read my version of the story and I'll let you take it from there. My version says, as we were returning from, and I cannot pronounce this name, Pujo, I guess it is, a terrible accident occurred. A car ahead was unable to avoid striking two small boys who ran out into the street in front of it, throwing one down on the sidewalk and the other five yards away into a field. One unconscious boy was carried into a car just ahead of us, and the other, Carrie Holma, was lifted into our car and placed into the arms of Brother Branham and Miss Isaacson, who were sitting in the back seat. Brothers Moore and Lindsay were in the front seat with me. As we hurried to the hospital, I asked through Miss Isaacson, the interpreter, how the boy was. Brother Branham, with his finger on the boy's pulse, answered that the boy seemed to be dead, since the pulse did not beat at all. Then Brother Branham placed his hand over the boy's heart and realized that it was not functioning. He further checked the boy's respiration and could detect no breath. Remembering the vision, he asked Brother Lindsay to look into the fly leaf of his Bible and see what the vision said about a little boy being raised from the dead. It was discovered that the description of the boy in the vision was exactly like the boy placed in Brother Branham's arms. He then knelt down on the floor of the car and began to pray. Brothers Lindsay and Moore joined in prayer, too, that the Lord would have mercy. As we neared the hospital about five or six minutes later, I glanced back, and to my surprise, the boy opened his eyes. As we carried the boy into the hospital, he began to cry. Jumping ahead a bit, he goes on to say, The boy who is in my car, Carrie, was dismissed from the hospital in just three days. Wow. So that's that's a pretty amazing story, right? I mean, and the majority of the people know about this story. 
Like I said, there's three eyewitness accounts. That is the account by one of the Finnish pastors, uh, Pastor Soinen, and you can find that in this book, A Man Sent from God. Um, Jack Moore has a, has a, a printed copy in A Man Sent from God, and here, or in A Voice of Healing. And here's the thing. There is also a, a version of this story told by William Branham immediately after this happened. And the thing is, all of them at that time tell the story just exactly like you read it, John. Right. Just exactly like you read it. But when William Branham gets back to the United States, after they've left Finland, he starts telling the story completely differently. And I'm going to read, I'm going to read from, um, His Wonders to Perform. And this is a sermon where William Branham shared the story the way that I'm sure you and I and most everyone in the message knows the story. And compare this back to the version you read. He says, he says, at that time, a little boy was lying down on the road below us. And after laying there for half an hour, our little party came down and found him. The first thing that's not true. They witnessed the accident happen right in front of them. He hadn't been laying there dead for half an hour, right? So there's the first thing he made up. And he says, and people were standing around. The main man of the city, which is equivalent to the mayor in our nation, he was there. And I walked over to look at this little fellow and thinking about my Billy Paul back home. So again, in the original versions of the story, William Branham never even got out of the car, right? right. Um, Jack Moore gets out, picks up the boy, puts him in the back seat, and there's no crowd. There's no mayor. William Branham is making this up totally. He says, I walked over and I was thinking of my boy Billy Paul. And this is what William Branham does. He turns these into emotional stories and he kind of inserts himself yeah. in as he, he does this. And so again, this part that, that part's fake. So the first sentence is fake. The second sentence is fake in this story. And then he says, and I've been away from home quite a bit. And how would I feel if that was my boy? And how that little mother and dad was going to feel um, after coming to see their little boy laying there dead. Only a parent can have that feeling. I was so tore up. So, again, he's using this story to make his emotional connection to the audiences, none of which is true up to this point. Then he says, They raised the little coat off his face and let me see him, and I started to walk away. Remember, William Branham never even got out of the car. No. And something happened. I turned to look at that boy again and the manager who was standing there. I seen it was the very description of the vision. And then the Holy Spirit began to move. There was 500 people there. Surely, with the assurance that I said, surely with the assurance that God keeps his word, I could say to them, it's thus saith the Lord. That little boy will be on his feet and living in the next five minutes. Yeah. John, that, this is the part that really startles me because William Branham is faking a thus saith the Lord here. William Branham never even got out of the car. There was no 500 people there. William Branham never thus saith the Lord, this little boy is going to be living in five minutes. He is making this up, John, after, after the fact. And to me, this is, this is the most disturbing thing here of all, is that he faked a thus saith the Lord when he would tell this story. Yeah. Then he goes on and he says, and when praying for that little, little lad and his broken bones, he was thrown 30 feet in the air. He'd been rolled under the wheels and slammed in the middle of the street with blood from his mouth, his ears, his eyes, no heartbeat for over 30 minutes. Again, William Branham is totally exaggerating the condition of this little boy. You can read the other accounts. This is not true. And then he goes, in five minutes time, that little lad was jumping and racing around and praising God. Again, 
that was not true. Five, they, five or six minutes later, they were still on their way to the hospital, and what he was still in a state they had to carry him into the hospital, he, and he was crying, weeping and crying as they carried him into the hospital. He was not up running around jumping and praising God. William Branham just made this boy from Finland story up, and, and there's no way that you can take this version of the story that William Branham told. There is not a single word in this version of the story that he tells that is true. Not a single word. In your version, the boy was thrown. In my version, it, there was one thrown, and the one that they prayed for was the one knocked straight on the ground. Yeah. It, it's shocking, John. He He just, he would take Whenever a little something would happen, and this was a, a something, I mean, a boy got hit by a car in front of him and they took him to the hospital. I mean, that's a, that is a dramatic thing, but he takes it and he transforms it into this totally fake, miraculous story. When the truth is, they hopped him in the back seat of the car, prayed for him, and dropped him off at the hospital crying and still had to carry him in. Like it, And he turns it into this, there was a crowd of 500 people and I got out of the car and prayed for him and thus saith the Lord and he's up running around jumping. It, it's enraging, John. Yeah. That is, it's outrageous. It is outrageous that William Branham would make up stories like this. And fake a thus saith the Lord do us. Fake of thus saith the Lord, John. You've probably seen these movies where it's a detective show and there's this room filled with people talking and you've got the you know the man and the woman over by the wine coolers and you've got the other guy who's sitting on the you know at a table with another lady and this detective's trying to picture what actually is going on in the scene and visibly in the movie they'll take away one one group of people and isolate what they're doing is removing the noise from the from the scene and they'll end up with just two people at a table and all the noise is gone and the inspector sees okay these are the people that I need to investigate etc well the way William Branham's stories work if you take away all of the changing details and remove all of this what you're left with the the parts that are consistent are the ones that were burned into his memory and when you take all of this away, you've been on a trip. You've seen Iraq, Charles. What wreck have you ever seen where there were 500 people gathered around it, especially in, in the location he's talking about here where it's out in the middle of nowhere? Where do you get these 500 people to place into this story? 500 people laying. Why didn't someone call an ambulance? <laughs> exactly. So when you take away all of the elements of this story, when you've got the detective who's in the room and they're removing all of the noise from the story, what you really end up with is they witnessed a wreck and they prayed for the boy. Simply put, that's, that's what I get from all of these stories. They prayed for a boy, which was a good thing. Pray for the kid who got, you know, if there were really a kid injured, pray for the kid. I get it. But why make up all of this stuff to go with it? Right. And and here here's the other thing too, John, I'll just William Branham is the one who pronounced him dead. William Branham's the one who put his took his pulse and said he doesn't have a pulse. Exactly. Yeah. The only reason they thought he was dead is because William Branham told him he was dead too. And remember, that's what he did back in Canada. He was telling people that back in Jeffersonville, I healed a man, raised him from the dead out of the morgue. And right. they end, ended up, after the investigation, it was William Branham who pronounced him dead. There was no official sign of death. So William Branham is adding these details to you know, the Carrie Holmes story. Well, we have the mayor who witnessed he was dead. 
Well, no, the the mayor wasn't there. I mean, there were not 500 people there. No, no. And it's, you know, when you read the true story, it's entirely possible that, you know, we know William Branham made up the whole healing part of it that he told us and the boy jumping up and stuff. Did William Branham lie about him being dead, too? Yeah. It's it's entirely possible. And so, if nothing else, we it, it the fact that he would fake a thus saith the Lord, right? And this is one of multiple fake thus saith the Lord's I'm 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 aware of that he made up. It's you know, you know if a person has a, a habit of of exaggerating fishing stories, right? Then you're never going to trust the size of the fish they catch, right? <laughs> right. Right. Like if if every time they tell you the story, the fish gets bigger, right? I got a bigger fish, bigger. At a certain point, you realize I don't believe nothing he says about the fish. <laughs> I'm trying to picture William Branham as Pinocchio trying to hold that nose as it grows and grows. How right. how much of that nose can you actually hold and still stand? <laughs> And when you see that William Branham is exaggerating and faking, thus saith the Lord's, and exaggerating and faking the miraculous, at a certain point you realize, just like you can't trust the size of the fish, I can't trust, I can't trust these miraculous things he's talking, I can't even trust his thus saith the Lord's, because he's making up thus saith the Lord's. Yeah. It, it, it completely undermines his his credibility. And, you know, that is so, so heartbreaking, John. I mean, it still breaks my heart to this day. And I'm not the one here destroying William Branham's credibility. William Branham is the one who chose to tell all of these fake stories. William Branham is the one who chose to do this to himself. And, you know, and people get angry because we point this stuff out. I cannot, I would be an absolute fool to put my hope and trust in a man who would exaggerate and fake of thus saith the Lord. You have to be an absolute fool to put your your trust in a man who would lie to you about what God said. Yeah. It, it, it's incredible. It is incredible. I've got to say, though, Charles, <laughs> I'm going to take it a different direction. I'm having so much fun with this episode. I'm I'm thinking that we need to keep going. And I'm looking at the clock and we've we've already gone over our hour. Let's no, break we this even out. Got through the first tour. Yeah, we've not even got through the first tour. I I think we need to tell more of these stories because I'm going to be honest, this is probably the most fun I've had in a podcast. So, let's um let's table these stories for now. Let's pick back up in the nap- next episode and Let's just keep going because, again, this is this is these are things that people have never heard in the message. A lot of them have never heard, and my family knew it. Uh, I don't know about you. I don't know whether you knew. I can assure you, Raymond Jackson knew it. Oh. All of all of these ministers know these things that we're telling you. They all know it. Think of this. They They've got. That's how I found out a lot of them. They told me. They've got one job, Charles. One job. To know the prophet, to know the message, to know the history, that is what these people are paying them for. And in their churches, they collect 10% tithe. Every tenth person is a salary. They are paying, if you've got 500 people, <laughs> think they could do the math. Think of how many salaries they get paid to know these things that we're telling you, and then they don't tell you. So let's pick this up in the next episode. 
If you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the healing revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming.